Bienvenue and welcome back to The Land of Desire, a podcast about the weird, wacky, and wonderful stories of French history and culture. My name is Diana, and if you're like me and grew up reading adventure stories and watching a lot of episodes of Wishbone, chances are you've read the story of the Three Musketeers. This week, we're kicking off a mini-series focusing on the lives of a different trio of sorts. The author of The Three Musketeers, Alexandre Dumas, his son, a playwright, also named Alexandre Dumas, and his father, a military leader named, you guessed it, Alexandre Dumas. To keep them straight, scholars generally refer to the author as Alexandre Dumas père, that is, father, and to his son, the playwright, as Alexandre Dumas fils, that is, son. In this case, we're going to start with an exploration of the most mysterious member of this trio, a man I like to call Alexandre Dumas Grandpère. As you'll see, it's completely ridiculous that the world has forgotten about Alexandre Dumas, the military leader. At the peak of his career, he was one of the most famous soldiers in all of France, savior of the French Revolution, a superhero. Unfortunately, Alexandre Dumas also had the bad luck to make an enemy out of a colleague, who would soon become the most powerful person in Europe. Whoops. Yet the most remarkable thing about all three of these men, who grew up to be well-known, well-loved, masters of their chosen field, is that all three men did so while facing one enormous disadvantage, one which most modern-day readers of The Three Musketeers don't even realize. The three men named Alexandre Dumas were black. Before I continue with this series, a note. All three Alexandre Dumas men were only partially black. According to the crappy social divisions of their time, however, that was enough to count. There are times when white French people distinguished between black and mixed-race people, and times when they didn't. Since this presence, or absence, of nuance affected the lives of the three men in very important ways, I may refer to their race in different ways at different times. And now, like one of the novels his son would one day write, I present the story of Alexandre Dumas the soldier, with action, romance, intrigue, terror, and triumph in episode one of my miniseries, The Three Alexandres. Across the bridge was death. Stretching across the Isaac River in the picturesque town of Clausen, which straddled the border between Italy and Germany, the narrow bridge was all that stood between the French soldiers and certain doom. On the other side of the water, the Austrian cavalry lay in wait. Behind the men, the rest of the French army were stranded in the streets of Clausen, dodging bullets, unable to reach the bridge anytime soon. No, the thirty-odd men were alone. 
Most of the men were dragoons, which is to say the men who did the dirty work. Dragoons were sent ahead to scout, to look for traps, to risk their necks and ride out ahead of everyone else, almost always on the cheapest horses carrying the cheapest guns. Today, however, the dragoons did not face the bridge alone, because at the front of their small group stood a remarkable man, one of their own, a man who had done the unthinkable and started out as a lowly dragoon like themselves before rising all the way up to the rank of general. Instead of hanging back to survey the battle and direct his troops from a safe position, this mysterious general had ridden out with the scouts that morning, dodging the same bullets, and now sat on horseback at the front of their party, staring defiantly across the water at the Austrians. The Austrians! For years now, the general had chased the Austrians. He had chased them across France. He had chased them across the Alps. He had chased them across the wide plains and deep valleys of Italy. And he would chase them across this bridge. The Austrians weren't going to make it easy, and they had blocked the general's way with impossibly heavy carts filled with stones. While Austrian bullets roared past their ears, the general and his men and their horses pushed the carts inch by inch into the river, until at last they found themselves at the end of the shoreline. Now, unsheathing their swords, the Frenchmen charged. As bullets flew and horses galloped and swords clashed, one by one the dragoons fell. With every slash of his sword, the general brought down Austrian after Austrian, even as his support grew smaller and smaller. With a cry, the general's horse was shot out from under him, and the general disappeared from view. A whisper ran around the Austrians, and then a cry, The Black Devil is dead! Over and over they cheered, The Black Devil is dead! But as they cheered, the general moved quickly, silently, behind the shadow of his fallen horse, picking weapons off of the bodies of dead Austrians lying within arm's reach. All of a sudden, as the Austrians were mid-celebration, out sprang the general with a pistol in one hand and his sword in the other. As the injured officer watching from the sidelines would one day recall, I managed to turn toward the general. He was standing at the head of the bridge of Clausen and holding it alone against the whole squadron. And as the bridge was narrow and the men could only get at him two or three abreast, he cut down as many as came at him. Bleeding from his arm, his thigh, and his head, the general slashed left and right, sending Austrian soldiers into the blood-red waters of the river, while behind him the sounds of French reinforcements grew louder and louder. In 1738, Alexandre Antoine David de la Payetterie, oldest son of the Marquis de la Payetterie, stepped onto the dock at Saint-Domingue in search of his sucker of a brother. Antoine's younger brother, Charles, was a sugar planter at the richest period and the richest place in human history to be a sugar planter. Saint-Domingue produced two-thirds of France's overseas trade, producing most of the sugar in Europe, and it was the crown jewel of the French Empire. It was also completely based on slavery. 
it's nearly impossible to overstate how horrible it was to be a plantation slave in San Domingo, considering one-third of all French slaves died within only a few years of arriving on the plantation. Slaves worked up to 18 hours on a good day. On a bad day, they faced whipping, burning with wax or boiling sugar, or branding with a hot iron. Unlike American slavery, wherein a slave's life was a horrifying but nevertheless long-term investment, Caribbean planters simply accounted for a lifespan in the single digits when purchasing their workers. It was just the cost of doing business. And for a planter like Antoine's brother, Charles, it was a cost far outweighed by the profits. Having grown tired of having a real job as a colonel in the military, Antoine planned to sponge off of his brother's money and laze around in Caribbean splendor. And he wasn't alone. As one royal official wrote at the time, you cannot imagine a more licentious country. As another Frenchman had written, a stay in San Domingo is not at all deadly. It is our vices, our devouring vexations that kill us. The colonists surrender themselves to vice, and death strikes them down like the Sith mows down ears of corn. Antoine was a man completely ready to surrender himself to vice, and it didn't take long for him to pick one. Within a few years, Antoine and Charles clashed for the last time, and Antoine fled his brother's plantation in the middle of the night with his most prized possessions, his three black female slaves. For the next decade, Charles searched for his brother with no success. In 1758, their father, the Marquis, passed away. After attempting to track down the heir, a French tax official gave up, writing that it is not known where Antoine lives, what he does, and if he is married or not. Perhaps, the rumor said, Antoine was dead. While France's Le Code Noir, or Black Code, contained all kinds of rules about how slave owners could exploit and abuse their slaves, there's one silver lining. Where there are laws, there are loopholes. In San Domingo, one of the most important loopholes concerned the children of masters and slaves. If a master were to marry the slave carrying his child, both the slave and her child would be considered free and legitimate. In other words, unlike just about anywhere else in Western civilization at the time, free mixed-race individuals could inherit money and pass it on to their children. Within the broad scope of Le Code Noir's loophole, an entire world flourished. By 1719, free, mixed-race adults made up nearly 5% of the population of San Domingo. A free-born, mixed-race middle class developed into a cultural phenomenon. Surrounded by slaves toiling in the fields, free people of color were able to learn to dance and ride and fence. Mixed-race women dressed in the latest Parisian fashions, and as one contemporary wrote, they are the envy and despair of the white ladies who aspire to imitate them. Society leaders would hold lavish balls, produce and star in and attend theatrical performances, and become business owners, lawyers, and celebrities in their own right. 
It was within this freewheeling society, hidden away from the rest of the world, tucked up high in the mountains of the island which we would one day come to know as Haiti, that a mysterious white man with fancy manners named Antoine de Lille, aka Antoine of the Island, moved in with a beautiful black woman. This woman wasn't any of the three slaves from Charles's plantation. Instead, her name was Marie Sisset. She was a slave, and on March 25, 1762, she gave birth to a son, Thomas Alexandre. Twenty-four years later, he would pay tribute to his mother the only way he knew how, by adopting her own name in lieu of his father's. For the rest of his adult life, this son, this mysterious mixed-race son of an aristocrat and a slave, would be known as Alexandre Dumas. On Christmas Eve, 1775, the Count de Molde received the shock of his life. Having inherited the beautiful chateau of Bielville from his uncle-in-law, the recently deceased Charles, the Count de Molde and his wife had taken great pains over the years to transform the property into a profitable investment. For over 20 years, Charles had run the property, not necessarily very well. But the Count and his wife, having inherited the chateau, figured that with hard work they would be able to turn things around and retire into a life of ease. That Christmas Eve, the Count's dreams were shattered by a ghost. Writing in his diary, the Count noted, A letter from the priest who informs me of the apparition of Monsieur de la Payetterie, the eldest brother. After 30 years, the heir had returned to claim his inheritance. He would need an advance of his inheritance, and he would need it right away, as he had, uh, he had had to pawn an important family treasure in order to finance his voyage back to France, and he wanted to buy the treasure back. Antoine had the equivalent of a pawn shop ticket in his pocket. What was this mysterious treasure that he had sold in order to make his way across the sea? It was Antoine's own son, 14 years old, sold for 800 French livres to a Captain Langlois, who kindly sold the boy back to his own father later that year. Luckily for poor Alex, those four months would be the last time he ever spent in slavery, because the moment his feet touched French soil, he was free. For the next 10 years, the boy who had spent his childhood hunting in tropical forests, swimming in the sea, and watching tavern brawls, now spent his adolescence playing catch-up to other aristocratic sons his age, studying foreign languages and etiquette, and of course, swordsmanship. As it turned out, Alex was good with a sword. No, really good with a sword. Though other aristocratic sons may have looked down on this mixed-race foreigner, they tended to shut up if the point of a sword was tickling their nose. When he wasn't busy winning duels against his best fencing professors and his worst bullies, Alex spent his hours like any other spoiled only child of the 18th century, wasting money on clothing, gambling, and nights at the theater. Like any other 20-something, 
Alex didn't know what he wanted to do with himself, but that was fine, right? He was the heir to a marquee. Who says he needed to do anything at all? He was a gentleman. That is, until 1786, when Alex discovered the terrible truth. His spending had, in fact, bankrupted his father. Ashamed and furious with himself, Alex decided to put his swordsmanship to good use by joining the army. This was respectable enough for a gentleman, but Alex shocked the world and his father by refusing to enlist as an officer. Doing so would have forced Alex to prove his noble origins for the past four generations. Technically, this should have been easy to do. After all, his father was a marquis. But one look at Alex's dark skin outweighed all the documentation he might have had. So on June 2nd, 1786, Alex signed up for a regiment of common dragoons under the name Alexandre Dumas. A week and a half later, Alex's father died. If you joined the French army in the late 1780s in order to shore up your aristocratic cred, whoo boy, did you pick a bad time. Joining the French army as a common soldier instead of an elite officer just a few years before the outbreak of the French Revolution was definitely one of Alex Dumas' savviest moves. Slowly but surely, he started to climb the ranks until just after the fall of the Bastille, when Alex was sent with the rest of his unit to the tiny town on the outskirts of Paris named Villers-Cotterets. It was here in Villers-Cotterets that Alex met the local National Guard leader, Claude Laboret. More importantly, he also met Claude's daughter, the beautiful Marie-Louise. For Claude Laboret, the revolution represented a commitment to the idea that all men are created equal. And he meant all men. For Claude Laboret, Alex Dumas' mixed-race status didn't seem to be an issue. And after having enjoyed the young soldier's company during his first day in town, Laboret offered Alex the opportunity to stay at his inn during his post. Later that night, Marie-Louise wrote to a friend, The dragoons that we expected arrived at 11 in the morning. For now, they are being generously received by one or another family in town. My father has his heart set on taking in a man of color who belongs to the detachment. He is very nice. His name is Dumas. He is said to be the son of a lord from San Domingo or somewhere in those parts. He is as tall as Prevost, but he has better manners. You see, he is a fine figure of a man. It didn't take long for those two to fall in love, and Alex asked Claude for his daughter's hand in marriage. Claude gave his permission on one condition. Alex would have to be promoted to sergeant before the wedding. Claude had no idea how well Alex would deliver on that promise. After attempting to hold down the fort in Paris, Alex headed to the Belgian border for his first crack at the Austrian army, which was hoping to take advantage of France's internal fighting in order to conquer France for good. Determined to jump into an epic battle and prove his worth, Alex instead found himself surrounded by... 
turnips. Here on the border of nowhere and wherever, soldiers were outnumbered by sheep, and there didn't seem to be any opportunity for an ambitious young soldier to make his mark. That is, until one day, an Austrian raiding party began creeping through the bean fields. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, an enormous man on a horse came leaping through the grass, charging towards the Austrians. Before they took the chance to react, Alex Dumas successfully disarmed and took prisoner no fewer than 12 Austrian soldiers. This was the first time Alex Dumas saw his name in the paper, but it would not be the last. After this skirmish among the beans, Alex Dumas was a rising star, and companies competed to attract him into their ranks. In the end, Dumas agreed to serve in a newly formed company led by his beloved former fencing instructor, who was also a mixed-race man from the Caribbean islands. In the end, Dumas agreed to serve in a newly formed company led by his beloved former fencing instructor, who was also a mixed-race man from the Caribbean islands. More importantly, his former fencing instructor had more than simple nostalgia to offer. He had a commission for lieutenant colonel with Alex's name on it. This was an enormous promotion. In one leap, Alex skipped right past sergeant and up, up, up the military ladder to a superior officer position. Needless to say, when Alex Dumas returned to Vier Couturette in the summer of 1792, Claude Labouré's jaw dropped. A few months later, Alex Dumas and Marie-Louise Labouré were wed in a simple ceremony. In case that wasn't cause for celebration enough, while Alex and Marie-Louise were wooing and wedding planning, the nation of France had just taken an extraordinary step forward, thanks to a little help from Alex's long-lost home. By 1791, the so-called rights of man had yet to reach the sugarcane fields of San Domingue. As word spread amongst the slaves that Frenchmen on the continent were fighting for freedom from tyranny, the Great Slave Revolt began. In the beginning, the revolt seemed destined for victory. After all, white people numbered roughly 15,000 on the island, compared to over 160,000 slaves. Unfortunately, the revolutionary government's commitment to equality did not extend as far as the sugar fields, and politicians back home were way too afraid of losing their precious income from the island to do anything that would risk destabilizing the sugar industry. Slaves now found themselves fighting revolutionary soldiers. And losing. Yet. If the government was still too cowardly to abolish colonial slavery, it still managed to make one step forward. On April 4, 1792, the National Assembly established full citizenship to all free black Frenchmen and men of color, in the colonies and at home. Unsurprisingly, Alex Dumas' commitment to the French Revolution grew a lot larger after hearing the news. Alex Dumas was now second in command of the Black Legion, composed of fellow freedmen and men of color fighting once again on the Belgian border. 
His commander and former fencing instructor spent most of his time mysteriously absent from the battlefield, leaving Alex in charge. Every day, Alex and his men displayed courage and conviction. No more so than in April of 1793, when a French general attempted a coup d'etat and recruited Alex to join him. Not only did Alex say, uh, hell no, he defended the city from the leaders of the coup. Between his steadfast loyalty and de facto leadership, Alex caught the eye of military command, and within six months, he received the kind of outrageous opportunity which only arises in wartime. Promotion to general. In less than 30 months, Alex Dumas grew from a lowly sergeant to the commander-in-chief of the Army of the Alps. By the age of only 31, Alex Dumas now commanded 10,000 men. The thing is, there's a reason the general job was vacant. In fact, Alex was the fourth general of the Army of the Alps that year. By late 1793, the mood of revolutionary France had switched from patriotism to paranoia. All of a sudden, anybody could be a threat to the revolutionary effort, even a general maybe especially a general, and nobody was safe from the threat of the guillotine. It took a savvy soldier to manage 10,000 troops, deliver a victory against uncertain odds, all without ever expressing any emotional outburst that might possibly cause anyone to doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. Oh, and Alex Dumas had to carry all of this off 7,300 feet above sea level. While General Dumas wrapped his head around his new responsibilities at the base of the Alps, three men arrived in Paris all the way from Saint-Domingue. A former Senegalese slave named Jean-Baptiste Bell, a free mixed-race man named Jean-Baptiste Mills, and a white clerk named Louis-Pierre Dufay. Arguing before the National Convention, the three men managed to inspire the politicians of 1794 to do what had seemed so politically impossible only a few years earlier. At long last, the French government voted to become the first country in Western civilization to abolish slavery. After hearing the news, General Dumas penned a letter to his troops, reading, your comrade, a soldier and general-in-chief, is counting on you, brave brothers-in-arms. He was born in a climate and among men for whom liberty also had charms, and who fought for it first. Sincere lover of liberty and equality, convinced that all free men are equals, he will be proud to march out before you, to aid you in your efforts, and the coalition of tyrants will learn that they are loathed equally by men of all colors. At the top of the highest mountains in Europe, the men were blind. Heavy winds, nicknamed the torment by the locals, whipped snow into their eyes. The snow was light and fluffy, 
settling down on the mountainside in cloud-like drifts, and anyone foolhardy enough to leave the tent found himself sunk up to his waist. For months, the men had waited, their horses sinking into the snow, their supplies dwindling, waiting for the opportunity to climb the mountainside where the enemy lay waiting. It was here, at the top of the world, at the pass which squeezed an army over Mount Cenis, that two great armies would fight for control of the Alps, and therefore Europe itself. For months, the soldiers of the French army had waited for their chance, knowing that every day they waited would increase the dangers that they faced on both sides, whether from their enemies, the Austrians, huddled at the top of the mountain, or from their own impatient, paranoid, revolutionary government down below. Any failure on the battlefield would be taken as a lack of faith in the French Revolution, which ensured everybody a one-way ticket to the guillotine. And by the middle of May, time was running out. The snow was melting, and what's worse, the bloodthirsty politicians back home were getting impatient. But how to attack? The Austrians were completely barricaded on three sides, and the fourth side was simply a sheer ice cliff. One night, General Dumas gathered the troops together. The time had come to take the pass. Prioritizing camouflage over patriotism, General Dumas ordered the men to cover their blue uniforms with white cloaks, a strategy he had picked up from the local hunters he had befriended during his lonely months of waiting on the mountain. Next, he ordered the men to strap on a pair of iron crampons. The men turned towards the ice cliff, crampons attached to their boots, and their eyes filled with comprehension and not a little bit of fear. Let us imagine for a moment that you are an Austrian soldier. You've been stationed on top of this chunk of glacier for months and you're bored to death. The wind is deafening, the snow is blinding, and the entire world around you feels strange and unreal. For hours, you've heard a loud, mysterious scraping sound, but Who's to say what sounds are normal up here? Perhaps it's the ice cracking or an avalanche. Who knows? All of a sudden, without warning, a horde of French soldiers launch themselves over the side of an ice cliff and charge. Dressed in white, they're impossible to make out among the snow. As Dumas later wrote, torrents of fire rolled down on our brave brothers in arms, but as his men began chanting, long live the Republic, the Frenchmen edged their way closer to the Austrians. Soon, wrote the general, the mouths of fire are turned against the enemy. I have the drums beat the charge and bayonets in front of us. We took all the redoubts, turning the enemy toward the horrible precipices. By the end of the battle, General Dumas had captured 1,700 prisoners and the pass through Mont Cenis. The Alps belonged to France. General Dumas was the hero of France. Back in Paris, the same bloodthirsty politicians who'd spent the past six months issuing threats now issued a proclamation praising the conquerors of Mont-Saint-Denis, glory to the invincible army of the Alps and to the energy and talents of the brave General Dumas. In every possible respect, for one brief, glorious moment, 
General Alex Dumas was on top of the world. But things were about to change. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening. In our next episode, we'll capture the incredible, thrilling, and surprising, and not a little tragic end to the life of General Alexandre Dumas. In the meantime, take a moment to visit us online at www.thelandofdesire.com or visit The Land of Desire on Facebook, on Twitter, or even on Tumblr. If you have a moment, please take an opportunity to rate and review the show on iTunes. It makes a huge difference in terms of helping other folks uh, discover the show. Finally, I really do recommend, if you haven't done so already, pick up a copy of Alexandre Dumas' The Three Musketeers. Even better, you could also pick up a copy of The Count of Monte Cristo, which, as far as I can tell, tends to borrow pretty heavily from the life of his dad. So I highly recommend them. I'm sure that your local library has a million copies of them, and they're great adventure stories. Until our next episode, thank you so much for listening. Au revoir!